a a guest coming into our house from far away. Who is it? <laughs> Very special guest. Have we guest. ever met this person before? <laughs> I'm so well, excited. let's see uh, if she's there. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, hey, Wilma. hey. <laughs> okay, Wilma, you're on. Okay, good to see you, and Easter blessings to everyone. And it's just a reminder of Easter, and I think this year especially we are in a crisis and i think we forget how much of a crisis the first easter was it was a spiritual crisis and as i'm thinking about this there is something unsettling in in any violence murder or that of a global pandemic it violates everything who we are and so we need to we question the order and the control of the entire universe at this time we're going through a revolution when it comes to our worldview and we are forced to reevaluate everything. And I agree. It's a good thing. I agree. It it's a good, good thing. thing. And we're excited. We're, we're doing the 15 elements. We're doing um, the fourth one, spiritual crisis. So that's what we're focusing on today. And uh, and so Wilma's going to be speaking about spiritual crisis first. And then I'm going to speak about it again. Mm -hmm. You're going to get two two talks. Uh, two and um, mm -hmm. so Wilma, are you ready? Yes. Okay, I I'm going to say a prayer for you. Uh, actually, Natasha, can you say a prayer for her, mm -hmm. and then we'll yeah. we'll let you go. Okay, go, go. Let me go. Yeah, we'll we'll let Wilma go. With oh, it. Okay. We'll go. Let we'll, we won't let her go. We'll. I thought you were gonna let me go. We're, no. Let's just never pray. let you. Go. We need we need to. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for for the wisdom that you've planted into Wilma's heart and everything you've blessed her with, and how it is to be a blessing to us. I pray that you just. Give her a covering of peace right now. Make her words your words and speak through her and let this just be a delight to your heart as we receive your teachings. Amen. Amen. Okay, Wilma, be blessed. You have the floor. Okay, I'm just so uh, unsettled with this world we now live in. It is just so different and it's such a crisis. Like yesterday we were shopping with an eye and I turned a corner and I... I was I came in within one foot of another person and we didn't even touch and we just recoiled as if we had you know created this huge dilemma that we had broken a rule we had broken the law and it's just so different you know the the crises of even just an encounter and safety and and even though it seems small all these small things add up to a huge crises that resemble the kind of crisis that Cliff and I went through when our daughter was murdered. And the thing that came to us, the question that came to us, that startled us and that made us reevaluate everything, was when we realized where was God when Candace was in the shack being tortured? And I think that is the crisis question that we all have to face again in this day and age where is god in all of this our world is crumbling we have no idea what's going to happen we feel violated we feel so we're losing people we're re actually we're losing a lot we're losing families we can't connect we can't hug them anymore and i realized as i was crisscrossing the country and i would ask everybody this question where was god when candace was it tortured in the shed and i realized that question with parents of murdered children came to everybody of every faith. It wasn't only us Mennonites. It was, I used to think that we were the ones of the faith. Everybody was asking that question and everybody has to come to that, that answer. Where is God in this? Where is God when there's a reality like 9-11 or 
COVID-19. We have to accept that this is real. And how can we, again, trust to God that we that let Candace down or that's how we felt? Can we accept, accept and, love, and love God who claims to be so powerful, can control everything, That's at least that's what the claim is, and to experience the upheaval. Sometimes we want to over-manipulate God then. We really go into a kind of superstition kind of faith, or we can distance ourselves from God and say that he doesn't exist, or we can turn into anger or run away like Job. Apparently, it's as if everybody in a sea storm, just like the sailors, start to pray at that point and come to grips with that. Like Job did with his friends. They had this big discussion. Where is God when, when he doesn't quite follow the norm? He doesn't provide for us the way we think he should. And we have to revise our theology. And that is the really scary part of it. We have to go back and think, okay, what is this all about? How does God fit into this? Not that God changes. It's just that we have to grow. We have to adjust. For our faith to survive, we have to be real. We can't be hypocritical. And that is such a beautiful challenge for us to revisit this. So often we have to accept another kind of, of image. Um, some people think of God as a supernatural human and, will, and who's benevolent and generous and that's all he is. And, uh, and maybe that doesn't fit anymore. My image that I changed to was our world is riddled with cancer. And we know that that happened in the Garden of Eden where something went awry and we now have a virus, which is very kind of um, similar to COVID-19 now. And my idea is that in order to combat cancer, we do chemotherapy. And chemotherapy in a healthy world is, is dreadful. It would kill a person. But in an unhealthy world, in a, in a cancerous world, chemotherapy is loving and kind. And that's what God does to us. Because, you know, in good times, Frankly, we kind of forget about God. We, we love God because he's so good. But we really don't deal with the reality of the world around us. We kind of exclude ourselves and isolate ourselves into goodness. And that's not the reality. We need the reality. So in a world like that is cancerous, we find that God is sometimes injecting chemo to save us, to love us, and to give us life. And so in, in all of this, it's kind of like this Easter. We have life, but we have death. That's the reality of what we have to live. We have to come to terms with both life and death. And they come together all the time, like Easter. You know, we have death on Good Friday, and then we have life today. And it's just this, this combination. They're very close. They're only three days apart, really. And that's often how it is. And we thought that Candace died in the shed. We thought it was the end. We really did. And so we we had to come to grips with the chemo of that. But now, all these years later, we realized that that was real life. Because not only did we find a new life and a new ministry and a new opportunity for lore, we also found that Candace continues to live if we give chemo life. And if we allow the death to happen and accept the reality of that, we can then experience a new life. It just takes a bit of time, a lot of pain, a lot of tears, but there is hope. There's always hope. It does. Our hope does not have to die. In fact, it is there from God. Our challenge, I think, is in this time as believers, 
we need to start to talk and accept the reality that people are experiencing. They need our love more than ever. They might not find God in their life, but they can see it in ours, and we need to just exude a joy and love and hope that we know is there and that we have faith about it. And for those who are struggling with this question, embrace it, follow it, know there is an answer to it, pursue it like you've never pursued anything in your life, because it's the big question and we either need to propound it, to love it, to explode it, and to show the reality of who we are and what this world's all about, or we need to pursue it like we've never done before, because it is a life and death kind of question, and that's what Easter is all about. Thanks. So good to be here, Cyrus and Natasha, with you. In this kind of funny world where we're kind of in the same room, but we're not. And that is really what the church can also do is in our imagination. We are together. God's spirit, we are together. Thanks. Oh, that was great, Wilma. Here we are. <laughs> so thank you. Um, and uh, bless you as you go and enjoy the rest of the service uh, back in your seat. Uh, so, uh, yeah, bless you, Wilma. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, that worked well. Mm -hmm. That was good. Yeah. She's good. Yeah. Okay, so what's next? I guess uh, we do the next part, which is... Um, Your message. My message, talking about, uh, talking about all of this. Could you pray for me? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with the truth that is about to come through Cyrus. Thank you for preparing him and for, for all of your planning through this. You've had this message prepared even before today, and we're just excited to receive it. Let his words not be his own, but be your words, Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, it's funny, I feel a little distracted. I feel like I'm a little bit of a, like a one-man show here. <laughs> one-man band trying to get all of this camera. working. So I'll just pray that I'm not like just totally distracted and that I have my whole brain uh, kind of working. It's all working. Everybody can hear me. It's all good. Oh, thank you for all of this, Lord. Thank you for mm -hmm. making this work uh, so we can still be together. And thank you for the prayers that are coming through um, and the encouragement. Everyone's yeah. so sweet and encouraging. Yeah. Um, okay, so in our last talk, we were talking about uh, complicated grief. And we were talking about um, how challenging it is sometimes to be able to let go of things and how we can get stuck in that and why. And one of the big reasons that people get stuck in uh, grief is uh, when there's some kind of problem, when it's an unusual issue... Uh, and then there's some blame. Usually there's responsibility somewhere and people will often deny that they're blaming themselves or deny that they're blaming other people. Um, and, and maybe they're not conscious of it themselves. Maybe they don't even realize that they're doing it. But uh, what I find is that oftentimes when you can find that seed of blame, um, it all of a sudden makes a big difference and uh, it can help the person to kind of break through and be able to process the grief. And so and one of the things I was saying last time was, at the end was, what I'm predicting in this situation is that there's going to be a lot of anger. And I think we're starting to see the tip of that now. Like, we're starting to see uh, the anger coming out. And I think we're going to see it more and more uh, as people um, uh, start to react to this in a deeper way. And um, so, 
and with that anger is going to come blame. There's going to be coming uh, responsibility. People are going to blame uh, leaders. They're going to blame each other. They're going to blame, probably blame the church somehow. Um, they're probably going to blame, um, uh, and they'll probably blame themselves. Um, there's probably going to be a lot of self-blame. Can you imagine, like, uh, if your family got sick because of this, and then you're like, oh my goodness, uh, what could I have done differently? Was it from me? So there's going to be like self-blame and, uh, and all of this is just going to make it really complicated. It's going to make it really difficult for people to deal with. And, um, and in the end, or, uh, as part of that, I should say, one of the big ones is what we're talking about today, which is blaming God. And, uh, ultimately that's where, um, blame goes when you're starting to blame things uh, ultimately when people are processing that and they're trying they're in their suffering and they don't want to experience the suffering and they're frustrated that they're suffering eventually um people blame god and uh, people from all walks as wilma was saying like it's just um it doesn't matter what your background is it doesn't matter what you proclaim yourself mm -hmm. to be uh people will blame him and uh, or whatever that idea that they have of god is um and so that's what we want to talk about today and the I find even for myself when I think about like well how does this work and like what does uh, whose responsibility is this I find myself I don't know why I don't connect to the answer right away like it doesn't happen um, immediately which is surprising because how long have I been a Christian how long have I kind of been speaking about this and talking about it but it's like oh I kind of move into this place of confusion at least for a little while until it's like oh right that's why and this is how it works and. Um, so I want to help you with that. I want to help everybody with that to be able to get to an answer really quickly, to be able to be like, no, that's the answer to have an answer ready for suffering because we're going to be on the spot sometimes like, well, how you believe in God? Why, why would you believe in God when, especially at a time like this, like, why would God allow all of this? And I want you to be able to have that answer, uh, top of mind and be able to connect with the Holy Spirit. So you're not like, you know, frantic in your mind thinking about, well, why does God do this? Or, or why is there suffering or, or something like that? And then you can't really quiet yourself and listen to the Holy Spirit and what he's supposed to be saying to that person. Um, so I want you to have that answer ready. And, um, the basic answer is love. Um, and that sounds kind of odd to start the conversation that way. Like somebody asks you, well, why is there a pandemic? And you're answer them love. Mm. Um, and, and the reason, the, the, the disconnect between why is there a pandemic and the answer is love, the disconnect between those two things, even though I believe that's ultimately the answer, is why this is so hard to process, right? Because um, the answer is love because God is love. And so why does this happen? Because of love. And it's like, well, I don't understand that. And so then we get offended with God because we can't connect those two. Because we're seeing it all from our point of view and we don't see it from God's point of view. And... Uh, and so today what I want to do is just try to connect those two for you, not perfectly because, um, because this is a deep question and the, at the end we're going to be left, um, everybody's going to be left with uh, a faith decision in the end and trying to like look at this God's way or look at their way to be offended or not be offended. But it doesn't have to be a big leap. It can be a very small one. It can be a small step, to, but I want to get you closer so that it's a small step of faith to believe uh, that this is about love and that God is good and not a huge leap. I don't want everybody to have to take a leap of faith. We just need to take a small step of faith. That's, uh, we just need a seed in order to get there. Um, I got mustard seed. But first let's talk about how prone we are to talk about irrational blame. Now, the Lord knows that we're prone to irrational uh, judgment. And so he says this in Matthew 7, verse three to five, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log 
that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So God's saying that we have a log in our eye. He's saying that there's a speck in the other guy's eye. There's problems, problems with being able to see clearly. And um, he knows that we have these problems, that we kind of get messed up. It gets all foggy. And um, it gets particularly foggy when people are upset. It gets particularly foggy when there's pain involved. And uh, that's when we see a lot of irrational blame. People aren't good at it even when... Um, even when there is no pain, but we get particularly uh, problem. It becomes particularly problematic when there's pain. I, I just like this. Uh, this is called the Blackstone ratio. Um, people who built the justice system, who built uh, built it, knew that people were terrible uh, at judging other people, and it's like, okay, we know that we're bad at this. And so the Blackstone ratio was uh, created by William Blackstone in seventeen in the seventeen sixties. It is better that 10 guilty people escape than that one innocent person suffer. It's better that 10 guilty people escape than that one innocent person suffer. So basically saying um, we need to create a system where it's not that where we aren't giving out a lot of punishments, that we have to have a really high standard for evidence and all these things because we're really bad at it and we're likely to convict the wrong person. And what I think a lot of the people were actually saying is, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy who's actually going to prison, who's innocent. So let's make this kind of tough to prove to make sure that we're like minimizing the innocent people. Let's minimize our error. Um, and so that's where this saying has kind of been adopted by the justice system and, and carried on for hundreds of years already. And we wouldn't need a ratio like that if we blamed correctly. Um, I'll just give you some examples of irrational blame that we kind of are a little bit more familiar with, even though these are everywhere. Um, let's say uh, we have we talk about abuse. Uh, this is one that I run into. Husbands blame their wives for making him abusive. It's like, well, why did you hit her? Well, Cyrus, you know, do you understand what she did? Do you understand how annoying she is or how much she provokes me? It's like, she knows all my vulnerabilities. And so, of course, I hit her. I mean, I know it's wrong, but like, really, really, like, look at what she did. And, and this is the kind of thing that I hear all the time. It's just this, I, it's this um, blame when you're actually responsible for something, when there's pain, we, um, we escape it. We try to uh, escape the pain by blaming somebody other than ourselves. So, um, and that's what this spec is. That's what the log is in the eye, is this kind of non-specific, I'm such a psychologist, listen to this, non-specific interference with rational thought, right? Oh my goodness, I wrote that, of course. Non-specific interference with rational thought. That's what the log is, that's what the spec is. And um, I'll give you another example that might stick in your head a little bit more. I remember, um, I heard this when I was working at Stony Mountain, and I didn't know the inmates who actually did this themselves, but I remember um, hearing the story. There were two inmates, uh, double bunked, you know, two guys in the same cell, and there's a TV, you know, a small TV that they can both watch, but of course there's only one remote, there's only one TV, and uh, so there has to be some kind of agreement between these people uh, in this cell, and usually it's the bigger guy who gets to decide or the guy with the bigger gang, I guess, but like, you know, that's the person who decides what they're going to watch. And so in this you know, small cell, there was a bigger guy and a smaller guy, and the bigger guy had the remote, and he was on the top bunk, and he was clicking. He was a clicker, you know? Some of you might be clickers yourselves, and he was a clicker, and a really bad clicker. Like, he didn't really watch anything. He just kind of clicked. That's what he watched. He just watched, like, little five-second snippets of things. And... 
Um, of course, this was terribly annoying to the non-clicker, the guy on the bottom bunk who really had nothing better to do except watch these um, channels fly by. And it was interesting because um, the interesting part of the story here is because the clicker broke. The remote control. Yeah, the remote control broke. And that's uh, maybe not too surprising because he was just using it all the time, right? So he kind of broke his own remote control. And so uh, if you can just imagine it, all of a sudden the channel stopped changing. And the smaller inmate looks up and is like, oh, maybe I can actually watch a show. And then all of a sudden there's a rustle up on the top bunk, from where the bigger guy's bunk, and he kind of comes down and looks at the uh, smaller inmate. He says, you broke my remote control. And I don't have to describe what happened after that, but like um, mm. the blame of somebody else, I mean, he broke his own remote control by the behavior that he was doing. And then because he was upset, because there was pain inside of him over not being able to change the channel anymore or having to get up to change the channel, he blamed somebody else because it relieved his pain. It made him feel better. And we are all wanting to relieve the pain. And so this is not a rational thought process. If you had told that inmate on the top bunk that this had happened to somebody else, he probably would have laughed and called it irrational and understood all the psychology of it or, or something like that, maybe in his own language. But um, he, he knew on some level that this was irrational. And yet it was true in that moment for him because it allowed him to lessen the amount of pain inside of himself. It, it, re it brought him relief. And we're looking for relief. And we will grasp onto things that give it to us. Um, so who do we blame? Well, really anybody else. Um, and, uh, the truth is we didn't have to sin and yet we did. Genesis two verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in a garden in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, I mean, that's it's not a hard question to biblically talk about who's uh, who's caused all of these problems, right? Like, that's actually the easiest one where it's like, well, the Bible says that we did. We didn't have to eat of the tree, but we did. And I think it's important to emphasize here that there were lots of other trees. I mean, some people will be like, well, why did he make a tree? And I think one of the kind of points to that is like, there were other trees. There were other really nice trees to eat from. There was just one that they couldn't eat from. Um, and, but I think that's the next question that people ask. Why was there a tree? Why would God make a tree? Um, and I remember doing a talk on boundaries before. And so I'm going to take a little bit from that because I, I really liked looking at it from the perspective of boundaries. And what I was saying in that talk was that when we have, first of all, boundaries existed before there was sin. So it's not a sin to have a boundary mm -hmm. because the tree was there. The boundary was created before the introduction of sin. So there's lots of things that have happened since the Garden of Eden Then try to figure out whether those are sin or not or a result of the fall. But boundaries weren't one of them. Maybe some boundaries, but like that boundary, it's not, it's not by definition a bad thing to have a boundary. And God made one. He made a boundary. And I was saying that boundaries aren't just there for no, uh, for no reason. They actually define who we are. You can know who Cyrus is or Natasha is or who you are by the boundaries that you keep, by the boundaries 
and boundaries that you say, the boundaries that you actually keep, you can understand who a person is by who by the boundaries that they make. And I use the example of of a drawing where you have the line around the vase. And how do you know it's a vase? Because of the boundary of what is the vase and what's not the vase. Whenever you look at anything, you can understand what it is by its form. And what is form? A line where, where something starts and stops. It's a boundary. You can understand who somebody is, their identity, by a boundary. And, uh, and God defines love for him. One of his definitions of love is following his boundaries by loving him. Mm-hmm. Not just being there and doing whatever you want, but by actually loving him. And it says in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will love who I am. How can you love me if you don't love who I am? And I am, a part of my identity is held. You can understand who I am by my law. You can understand. So when you say, I love the law, when you say, I love um, God's ways, another way to put that, because I know the law kind of can be talked about in different ways. But if you love God's ways, you are loving him. And if you love somebody's ways, the way that they do something, the way that they are, you love their boundaries, you love the way that they're doing it, you love who they are. And so when he said, I want you to love me, he wasn't just saying, I want you to be loving. He was saying, I want you to love me. I want you to actually love me in truth. And in truth, this is who I am. This is my boundary. Um, I'm somebody you have to, uh, kind of understand in this way. And so if you're going to love me, you don't, and you can not love me, you can follow my boundary. You cannot follow my boundary. So it's not wrong to have the boundary. Um, and we agree to things like in marriage, we agree, we give our vows, right? And it's harder for people to blame the other person when you've actually agreed to something. Now, the next problem, okay, so we ate of the tree, but why was there a tree? Well, because God needed to define who he was and give us a way to follow that, to love who he is in truth. But the next thing that people say is, I never, I never agreed to this. Uh, one of the main principles in psychological ethics is informed consent. It's the first one. Dignity of persons. Informed consent. Informed consent. I have to agree to something. And when we have marriages or other things like this, we agree to something. And then, um, and then we're held accountable to it. It's a way to dignify a person. And um, God doesn't use informed consent when he creates us. Um, at least not that we know of. Who knows? Maybe, maybe there is a way that he can talk to us before, just before creation. We can agree. I don't know. I mean, um, but uh, as far as we understand it, and as far as the way the Bible describes it, there is no informed consent. And this is a problem that people in the Bible bring up. In pre-service prayer, people were talking about Job and... Uh, in Job ten eighteen, it says, Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before an eye had seen me. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Why did you create me to experience all this suffering? I didn't agree to this. I, didn't, I don't want to be here. It's better that I would never have been born. And um, why didn't you ask me? Um, and... Informed consent makes sense when you don't understand a person perfectly. When you're a bad judge, when you can't understand a person inside and out, you have to let them judge themselves. Like, do I want to be in a marriage? I'm going to judge that, not allow you to judge that. I'm not going to allow you to force me to get into marriage because you don't know if I want to get married. 
But God's a bit bigger than that. Uh, so our normal rules around informed consent don't really apply to him because he's a perfect judge. And his reply to um, Job is kind of interesting. In Job 38, and it goes on a long way, I'll just read a little bit of it. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Where the, star, where the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Basically, God's main reply to Job was, you're a little guy, and I'm a big guy. And um, I know, I know what I was doing. I know who you are. I don't need informed consent because I know every hair on your head, and I know what you want, and I know how to take care of you. I know um, I don't have to ask because I already know what you're going to say. Um, God talks about the potter and the clay. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing's form say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? How can a pot talk to a, a potter? Uh, basically he's saying, I'm big and you're small. And you need to just realize that some of the things that you guys have are there because you don't really understand each other and you don't know every hair on each other's heads. So you have to ask. Uh, we don't even know what we want. I don't even know what I want. If God did everything I said, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, if he gave us informed consent, we would be making all kinds of mistakes. And, and we can see that when he does that. And when he created us, he knew better and he used his judgment to make us. Um, I'll give you an example of how he says, I know better. First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Basically, it's saying, God knows what he can give you and what he can't. So you can't talk back and say, I didn't want to be made, or that was too hard for me, because we're talking about God. Mm. And that's just a reality that we need to face uh, when we're trying to say something about how we didn't get consent or something like that. So I've kind of laid it out, like, why was there, like, who did this? Well, we ate the tree. Why was there a tree? And then also, um, and that's because that's our way of actually engaging in true love. And then... You know, the last question of why were we even made, it's because, well, God knows how to judge us and knows what we want before we even want it. He knows our consent before it's even there. But there's another answer. Because um, remember in the beginning I said the answer is love? Well, where's love? Why were we made? He had the right to do it. He didn't need informed consent to do it. But why were we actually made? Why did he bother? And it was because of love. He wanted love. Love was worth it. Was worth everything. Why did he make the tree? Because he wanted love. He wanted true love. He wanted us to love him for who he actually was. He wanted us to be able to choose him. And why are we suffering? Why is there a pandemic? Because God is long-suffering. He's patient with us. We've made a mess and he's not cleaning it up. If you want, if you want him to clean it up, it's all going to go. 
he is willing to, to wait patiently with us as we go through the own muck that we made. I mean, we make a mess and then we want God to just clean it up. And he's saying, look, this mess can be used. This mess can be used to help you. This mess can be used to grow you, to bring people into the kingdom. And he does. He, make, he cleans up our messes. But he doesn't clean up all of them. Um, and you may say, like, the devil did it, and that's true, the devil did it. Um, but when you're talking about these ultimate answers, that doesn't really do it, because then you have to say, well, why is the devil? And it's like, well, God, the devil is unleashed by us. We are the ones who unleashed his power. We are the ones who believe his lies. We are the ones who engage with him. Uh, the devil didn't force our hand in the garden. We engaged with him and we gave him power. Um, so yes, we have to pray and we have to, I don't disagree with the prayers about curses and things like that, but we have to just realize that the responsibility is ours and it stops with us. Um, it stops with us. Now, when you're able to go from that place where you're seeing things from your perspective and you're able to see it from God's, when you're able to go from a place where it's like, God did this to me to a place where it's like, no, I did this to myself. God was right to make me. I would have wanted to be engaging in this love. He was right to make me. He was right to make a way for me to love him. And we're the ones who messed that up. And I've messed it up in my own life. That's when you realize the truth. And that's called humility. Mm -hmm. When you're able to engage in that truth, mm -hmm. when you're able to see it from God's perspective, uh, that's humility. It's not thinking less of yourself mm -hmm. than what you are. It's just realizing what's really mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. When you're able to see it from your own perspective, from your, when you're able to see it from God's perspective and understand that you're still here and you're still going through this because he's patient with you. Because he wants you. He wants you to engage with him and he wants you to help other people. He's patient with other people. That's why we're still here and going through this. We're fortunate to be able to go through a pandemic. The alternative would be that Jesus had never come. He wants to give time for people to respond to him. He wants us to engage with him and he wants to spread mercy. It's a mercy that we're here, that we're able to love him, that we're able to love each other, even though we're living in the mess that we created. And he wants to create and engage in processes on the earth that are created by us, but also fashioned by him in his own divine, perfect way in order to bring people into greater levels of love. In pre-service prayer, we were talking about how there's more people engaging in prayer now in a unified way because of this. Even though we're all at home, we're praying together. There is a unity and there will be a falling away. And that's not what, that's not what God wants. But he, there is also going to be a coming into the church. There's going to be people coming into the church because of this. True followers are going to follow because of this, because they were able to put their own pain aside and follow from his perspective and say, you are good and I don't understand how, I don't understand everything, but at the end of the day, you're big and I'm going to trust you. It's not a big leap, mm. but you're bigger than I am mm. and you've been good to me and I know that I've engaged in horrible things that are, that are ugly in your eyes. I've contributed to this in so many ways and yet you're still here for me and you've still made a way for me. It's because of love that we're still here. It's because of love that he's endured with us. So today what I want to pray about is as people go through this spiritual crisis, as people go through this time of 
like is it god's fault it's a you know it's a conversation it's actually really exciting that they're even engaging Mm. with him and Mm -hmm. um i remember um learning you know we were learning motivational interviewing we're learning how to help people uh you know change their minds about something and i remember learning that when somebody answers angrily it's often a sign that they're getting closer to change Mm -hmm. So if you're talking to somebody who's maybe trying to give up cigarettes, but they are um, kind of ambivalent about it, they're like, yeah, I want help with cigarettes. You know, can you make me do that, please? I like to give them up. And then you're talking to them and you're you're working with them. And then they turn to you and they say, well, Cyrus, how do I give up cigarettes anyway? That anger is actually a moment when they're like, they've actually got some hope. They're actually engaging in the conversation mm-hmm. in a real way. They're not just saying, I can never do that. They're not in this hopeless place where it's actually kind of safe for them. I'm just going to smoke my cigarettes and leave it all alone. They've actually engaged in it and they're like, oh, I want to do it. If you're telling me I can, well, then how do I even do this? So when you see that anger, when you see this anger towards God, that's the opportunity. That's the time when they're actually engaging in the conversation again. And they're actually mm-hmm. thinking, oh, maybe there is hope and that hope is painful. <sighs> God. I can't do this on my own. Are you good? Well, are you good? That is actually hope. That's actually hope. And that's exciting. When people will go like, oh, are you even good? That's our opportunity to be like, yes. Mm. He is so big. Mm. He can take care of you. Mm-hmm. He is going to be with you. He has been with you even when you spat on him. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can come right back to him. Mm. And he's still going to love you. And that's what he's doing with the world. He's just waiting for people. To wake up in their own mess and say, God, are you even real? And be like, yes, he is real and he can take care of you. He can take care of your family. Mm-hmm. He can see you through everything. He can see you through this. This is nothing for him. Hmm. So I want to pray for the speck. I want to pray for the log in our eyes. I want to pray for the speck in other people's eyes. I want to pray that we are able to engage in this in a way that helps people uh, to be able to see clearly that as they have their anger, as they blame God, that that would be the next step for them. That exciting step of them actually engaging in a conversation about faith and uh, walking towards hope in God. So Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you're so in love with us, that you wait patiently with us, even in this mess that we've made, even when you've had every reason to turn away and say, I've had enough with you, all of your things that you've done through all of history, all of these problems that you just won't learn from in a complete way, Lord, I thank you that you are just so long-suffering that your mercy over the earth extends and extends and extends and gives opportunity after opportunity, and that you give opportunities to wake us up, and that there are times when you say, wake up, wake up, right now. Mm. And Lord, I pray that there would be a speck that would come out of the people's eyes, Lord. I pray that that speck would go in the name of Jesus. I pray that there would be this time of waking up, of faith, of of a relationship, and even in that relationship when there's anger. When I see a couple who's just blah, and they don't even talk to each other, and they don't have any feelings towards each other, that's worse than when they're angry with each other. Lord, mm-hmm. I pray that you would give people, take them out of their just whatever, their um, just rejection and and distance from you and that the next step would be anger that they would go like lord help me where are you are you even real i pray that those conversations would pop up all throughout the nations all throughout the world that you would bring people to a place where they fall on their knees and say god 
Nothing else is working. All I have is you. Are you even real? And I pray that your spirit would flood in in those moments, that you would give people an awareness, an awakening. There's prayers for prodigals this morning in pre-service prayer. Lord, we pray for the prodigals. We pray for the people who have never had faith. We pray for each person that they would come home, that they would find you, 